No, I'm just talking about myself. <laughs> it's good to get to that place where there's no longer any uh, social performance. <laughs> if, like me, you can get to it every day of your life, you're, you've arrived. <laughs> Switch my outfit today so I wouldn't wear the same clothes I wore yesterday. So I'm in high presentation mode. <laughs> So, uh, plodding along, Gaz and Niga noted that the human brain is organized in terms of a mental society. And this was way before IFS came about or any of the, many of the concepts we've been talking about. The human brain is organized in terms of a mental society. And alongside our verbal system, there are many other mental units that each have their own memories, their own values, and their own emotions and are expressed through a number of systems. What he means is nonverbal rather than verbal. What makes this process so eerie is that these systems are often not in touch with each other, but have their own existence entirely outside of language or the control of logic. In other words, we have a second, at least a second, if not multiple internal systems that are running on their own and they're impervious to our, uh, they don't speak in language. And this is an important note because if we want to work with the emotional mind, as J-Mo and I have been talking about, you can't logic with yourself. You can't try to tell it, get over it enough procrastination, enough fear, enough panic, enough of this sadness, enough of this um, obsessive uh, memories. The emotional mind doesn't have the language facilities anyway that it can even understand what we're trying to accomplish when we yell at ourselves. And we've also seen throughout the course of this weekend that anyway when we think and review ourselves, we're in a very uh, singular part of the mind that is not very compassionate, nor logical itself. So the logical mind uh, works by a number of basic states. There's task positive, which is when you're doing something that you're really interested in that doesn't require a great deal of, of constant inner narration, like gardening, drawing, cooking, uh, anything that involves your hands, riding a bicycle, anything that creates a state of flow, that's the most pleasant state for the conscious left hemispheric mind. And I'm basing this on a study called uh, uh, A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind by two Harvard psychologists, Gilbert and Killingsworth. Then there's, of course, another state called default mode wandering, which it turns out most of us spend our lives, the bulk of our lives in. And that's when we're not doing something that requires a great deal of interest, and so we allow our minds to wander. And when that happens, the very often the part of the brain, which we refer to as the ventral medial, switches on and we become consumed with thoughts about ourselves. And this quality of mind is 
considered to be the most um, stressful. Because it turns out when we allow our thoughts to wander back again to me, what's going to happen to me, what did happen to me, what do other people think about me, me and speculation turns out to be the miracle growth of obsession. So the emotional mind is, uh, as we said, it's often working behind the scenes. Uh, it lets us know when it's activated through a number of channels. It focuses on our feeling connected and secure. So it has its own goals that are often in contrast and in conflict with our intellectual, rational goals of wanting to have a nice story in life and a lot of achievements and look good and uh, get a lot of things done. Many of those uh, ideas mean nothing to the right hemisphere whatsoever. And it is in its concern with staying secure and connected with others and maintaining tribal structures and maintaining attachment figures in our life and feeling uh, seen by others. Um, when it doesn't get its need met, it will talk to us through a number of nonverbal ways, such as gulping air and fear, um, feelings of clenching in the body, which the Buddha called Vedana, which is essentially a sense of discomfort when I feel disconnected, unseen, uh, isolated, uh, unsafe. And then when I address those uh, concerns and I feel secure with you and I feel connected and loved, then the body, the emotional mind through the insula uh, switches on the parasympathetic nervous system and the vagal vagus nerve relaxes everything and I go into a broaden and build mode where I relax and I, I signal to you by the broadening of my chest, the relaxing of my shoulders, the smile on my face, the, the, the relaxation of my outbreaths that I'm, um, I'm open, I'm not armored, I'm not defensive, I'm open to hear what you have to tell me. I'm open to share with you. So it can interfere not only with feelings and the way that we breathe when we're agitated and activated, we start gulping air, but it can interfere with our autonomic nervous systems even. The emotional mind can interrupt digestion, as you probably found by now, appetite and sleep, times of insomnia are often not because we've drunk too much caffeine or uh, but because the emotional mind doesn't feel safe and doesn't want to allow us to fall asleep. It's in a state of hypervigilance. And of course there are the external emotional cues, the tears after we lose someone we're close with, the shame that we feel when we act in a way that we're not proud of, etc. So over the history of the humanities, different psychologists and philosophers have all pointed out that the mind is not a single system, but it is actually comprised of multiple, multiple systems that are running at the same time, often unaware of each other. 
Alice Miller's famous work, um, The Gifted Child, what was it, the full title? Drama of the Gifted Child, talked about the inner child that is locked into place due from the formation of early abandonments. Jung, Carl Jung, talked about the shadow self, where all the repressed needs and archetypes wind up expressing their needs in the background of consciousness. Freud talked about the tripartite mind, the ego, id, and superego formation, most of which are working in opposition with each other, and the poor ego has to run around meeting the needs of the inner parent versus the inner child. So, the Buddha got there first. There are so many places in the suttas where the Buddha points directly to the existence of an unconscious. One place, and I'm not going to be talking about them, uh, is the Anasayas, which the Buddha says are latent tendencies that reach up and influence us beneath the level of awareness. In his also his chain of uh, rising co- uh, co-origination, uh, the Paticca Samapada, the Buddha says that before our thoughts arise, we have feelings, and that these feelings are almost invariably not seen by us, and they essentially condition and influence all of our thoughts. So already the Buddha is proposing an idea very similar to contemporary um, psychology, which is that a lot of our thinking is simply a cognitive distraction keeping us from feeling difficult, uncomfortable feelings in the body. My favorite, though, example of where the Buddha points directly to the need to understand the mind is complex and the need to address its emotional um, concerns is in one of his most important suttas, which is called the Salatha. And it's known to many of us as the Arrow Sutta. It's most quoted for the early parts, and that's not unusual. Most people who read the suttas give up about halfway through because they're boring. So there's a lot of suttas that are quoted where the, the teachers just give up and sort of quote the first part. A lot of the Americans who came back from, from uh, Thailand and Burma in the 70s, the Jewish law firm of Cornfield, Salzburg, and Goldstein, <laughs> were kind of notorious for doing that. They were wonderful people and really did a magnificent job of, um, of essentially assimilating a vast amount of teachings into a basic structure that Westerners could use to um, uh, translate into the sort of, uh, sort of uh, American concerns. And then they, uh, in collaboration, brought over a lot of wonderful, important teachers from uh, Burma and uh, you know, India, Sri Lanka, Vietnam, uh, Thailand, and then introduced to the West, finally, the more pure teachings. 
So anyway, in the sutta, uh, the sutta starts when the Buddha essentially says that uh, most people, when they get shot with an arrow, they experience pain. Uh, and he's using the arrow as a metaphor for not only just pain, but old age suffering, uh, death, uh, all the inevitable experiences in life. Uh, some would argue also the basic emotions of sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair are also part of that. I certainly do. But then he says there's another group of, uh, there's a group of people that go on to add even more suffering and that group of people is most of us, what he calls uh, mundane, default minds. Uh, and um, when he says the average person gets shot with one of life's disappointing experiences, we go through a breakup, a disappointment in a, a career endeavor, we feel uh, abandoned by parents or families, we feel disappointed in events in the world, we look at what's going on in America today and we feel horrified that there's not just these inevitable feelings of uh, pain, but then there's also this added second arrow we shoot into ourselves, which is entirely unnecessary and it's essentially boils down to why is this happening to me? How can I avoid this happening to me? How can I escape? How can I not be the one who has any uh, pain in my life? How can I establish immunity to pain? How can, I, how can I get out of this raw deal called life? So the first arrow is inevitable. It happens to each of us. And it's just the, what we sign up for with a human birth. But then there's the second arrows, which we add, which fall under the category of craving life to be other than it is, which is, I don't want this to happen to me. This is unfair. How can I avoid this? How can I escape? So that's pretty much where people give up on the, on the sutta. Uh, but it goes on. And so the implication is not just that the wise practitioner doesn't add all that craving and all that taking it personally and thus in dropping that stuff uh, somehow winds up vastly reducing suffering. But the Buddha says, when a normal person has an uncomfortable experience, they crave sensual pleasure or default habits why? Because they don't understand that there's any other way to respond to these reactions than other to resist or crave pleasure. In other words, when we have one of those emotional reactions that arise habitually in response to our uh, disappointments, and those habitual responses can be taking it personally, fear, anxiety, worry, hiding, avoidance coping, uh, shutting down, hypervigilance, on and on and on. They fail to see that every experience has an allure, a drawback, and an escape. Now this idea, every experience has an allure, a drawback, and an escape, is what's called yonisa manasikara, 
appropriate attention. And this is one of the Buddha's chief concerns towards the end of, end of his life, is promoting this new approach which he envisions standing side by side with mindfulness, internal awareness. Yoniso Manasikara, in seeing everything in terms of an allure, a drawback, an escape, the allure, asada, is what is any of our behavior, unconscious or conscious, what is it doing for us? Viewing every behavior as having a purpose. And in the Buddha's examples, he says, he shows examples of essentially that every single habit, ritual, routine, tendency, uh, unconscious, tick we have is trying to accomplish something for us. It's actually not trying to wound us. So when we Im immediately view like panic attacks or procrastination, our tendency might be to believe there's a part of me that's just lazy or not very bright or doesn't care about me or wants to sabotage me. And from the very first, the Buddha is saying, no, every single human trait, even our beliefs that we're unlovable, our tendencies to try to please everyone, they all are trying to meet needs. It's very important that we understand this and that we learn to figure out what the unconscious need is in all of our tendencies. Adinava then is to show the, the mind the drawbacks, to show it that its way of going about meeting our needs are not getting, are essentially not helping us, but actually beginning to, uh, in some way, make our life more complicated. Now, the emotional mind needs to see this, it can't be told this. We can't sit around and lecture ourselves, our, un our unconscious mind. Hey, stop with the panic attacks, okay? I want to look confident all the time. I don't want to have the anxious breathing on the subway. Stop with the shutting down when I'm on a date. I want to look confident and happy and on top of my game. Stop with the, you know, keeping quiet when I could be confident, etc. You have to show, we have to show the emotional mind that while it's got real needs, the way it's going about meeting those needs to feel secure, to feel connected, to feel safe, are actually not being met. And then the third is nisarana, is showing or seeing both the fact that the emotional mind has these needs, but that the way it's going about meeting these needs are not working. How can we find a new solution? Nisarana means an escape or an alternative a way out. So the Buddha is saying we have to understand what our real needs are and not judge them. We have to show them that they're not working, show the emotional mind that it's tools it's been re relying on of people pleasing or uh, constant avoidance or whatever it is aren't working. And three, show it, provide it with a different alternative. So the reason the mind can do this, can have completely incompatible needs running at the same time, is because we're only aware of one 
view or belief at a time, and generally those are our conscious needs to achieve, to move on, to stay busy, to look good, to acquire, to consume, to, uh, to have a great reputation, to get things done in the world, to be uh, uh, what is shown by us, by others, to be an upstanding citizen. So these beliefs that we're conscious of are known today as the pro-symptom belief. I mean the anti-symptom belief, I'm sorry, the anti-symptom belief. So whenever a symptom like panic, anxiety, depression, procrastination, anything we don't like about ourselves, it calls those things symptoms and it's anti-symptom. It doesn't like them, it wants to get rid of them. So the Buddha is calling for asking us to come up with a pro-symptom understanding. What is the value that these parts of myself that I don't like and their, their actions, what are they trying to accomplish? This means even the most, the part of myself that I like least, the alcoholic, the addict, the, the judgmental, the avoidant, the nervous and self-conscious, all those parts to transform this tendency to be at war with myself and to cultivate a compassionate first stance where I look again and I ask, what is the reason these tendencies are there? What is my emotional mind trying to accomplish? So to change requires that we bring to light this unconscious need that's creating our symptoms, the patterns and the tendencies that we struggle with, and to then, while they're activated, show them that they're not getting our needs met, their needs met, and that there are other ways. Again, this is show, not tell. We literally have to show ourselves actively um, we can't resist these tendencies with any success. We have to educate these parts of the mind that are still desperately frightened, still desperately viewing the world from the perspective of an inner child. Much of the emotional minds, its beliefs, if we've kept them repressed and unacknowledged, remain the same as a six-year-old or a seven-year-old inside of us, believing that danger is everywhere, that people will abandon us at any moment, that unless we uh, make everybody like us all the time, that we'll be dropped entirely by the world, that we won't be fed, that unless we binge eat when we feel lonely, that we'll feel completely isolated and unlovable. So we need to first really activate and connect with these underlying beliefs, bring them to light, and then inform them. So to tell you how this can look, I'm going to rely on uh, a couple of famous examples, textbook examples. I could also talk about examples from my own life if I could think of them this early in the morning. So... Uh, one example is of a woman who was in her 20s. She was British, and she fell in love with a guy, 
Um, and they were both very happy in the relationship. But the one issue was, uh, even though she was 28, and she was still living with her mother, and every time her fiancé broached the idea of them moving in together to start a life together, she would react and panic, become extremely emotional, and run into a room and refuse to talk about and threaten to break off the engagement. And um, the mother wanted <laughs> her child to move out. <laughs> the mother was not in any way exerting any unconscious or conscious influence to keep her child there. In fact, it was the mother's suggestion that she investigate the underlying mechanisms that were causing her to run in panic when it came to moving out. Why the very mention of leaving home was causing her panic. So she went into therapy, and the therapist used a whole bunch of mindful tools and interesting uh, techniques to get her in contact with the underlying emotional um, needs that this behavior, hiding, pushing away her fiancé, threatening to break off the relationship, what were these behaviors what were they trying to accomplish? So first what he did was he took a very pro-symptom approach. He was like, okay, your fear of moving out, your fear of, of taking this step, it has a real legitimate reason behind it and we have to uncover what it is. And so he had her close her eyes and visualize what it would be like um, leaving home and ask her what she would feel. And of course, what she felt was terror and fear. And so he saw that in some ways, staying home was alleviating terror and fear. And we'll do this exercise, I'll show us how to do it, where we visualize what we'd have to be, feel if we didn't have our neurotic tendencies. They're not trying to harm us. They're actually trying to, as we talked about in parts work, these firefighters are trying to protect us from something. And I hope you can see the overlap between this approach and parts work. The Buddha is almost saying exactly the same thing. We have to understand the needs of each part. So the next thing he did was a um, free association where he said to her, okay, I'm going to say a sentence and I want you to complete it and I just want you to say the first thing that comes up to mind not think about it and that's very important because the goal in free, free association exercises is to bypass the linear left hemisphere the cognitive logical needs and to allow the right hemisphere which has a faster circuit to use its very primitive abilities to have any language, which has very limited language skills, but just enough to say something. And if you, if you keep doing free association enough, eventually what happens is the truth will come out, at least the emotional truth. It's kind of interesting. On the, I think it was the first night JMO did an exercise where she had a, a person repeat, thank you, why are you here? Thank you why you're here. Thank you why you're here. You do that enough, and eventually you wear down the smart 
what's the, the responses I'm supposed to give and then eventually something emotional will come out. I'm an erotic mess and I need help. You know, <laughs> whatever <laughs> might come out. But we need to be persistent because of course the first maybe 10 answers will be very, very tactical and logical and meant to make us look good to others. So in this free association exercise, the therapist kept saying, I'm afraid of leaving home because, and at first she said, I don't know, you know, there's something wrong with me. I'm afraid of leaving home because uh, it's, it's uh, scary. I'm afraid of leaving home again and again and again. And finally, one moment, she blurted out something that sounded so completely insane that he knew that he had stumbled on the real emotional truth. Because the real emotional truth almost invariably can sound very, very, very insane to us. A little bit like last night when we were talking about um, fear of collaboration because we believe it will drive other people away. That's an example of when we have an underlying real emotional need that is to the cognitive mind sounds bizarre, but actually has deep emotional resonance. So finally, like after the 25th time of asking her, I'm afraid of leaving home because, and she responded without thinking, because my mother will die. Now obviously that doesn't make much sense to the logical mind. Why would her leaving home kill her mother? But the therapist was very attuned and realized, okay, I've stumbled upon something here because there's no way a logical mind would ever say that. Therefore, another part of the mind is speaking here. If we say something that no logical, rational mind would say, it means that an emotional part of the mind is speaking to us. So when she said, I believe leaving home will kill my mother, he investigated that and he asked her to just free associate anything that that brought up. And over a number of sessions, she found this image, which may or may not have actually happened, but it was lodged in her emotional memory system. So many of our emotional memories are what's called masking. They're just synthesis of uh, a bunch of patterns that happen, but not actual events. So when he asked her to investigate what came up was an early memory of herself as a child, she believed around six, her drunk father yelling and shouting and looking like he was about to slap her mother. And as a child, she remembered standing in between her father and her mother and coming to her mother's defense and her father essentially going off. Now, whether or not that actually happened at around that age, she formed the emotional belief that her staying at home was preventing her mother from being killed by her father. So now, when we look at that woman's refusal to leave home and to go off with her fiancé, do we not see it from an entirely different light? Does it not have its own logic, its own needs, its own uh, value system, beliefs, goals. The goal was she wanted to keep her mother safe and alive. So then the next, now that we have the emotional belief uh, activated, we need to, she needed to be shown 
that the emotional belief was no longer true. Once the emotional belief was shown to no longer be true, all of the tendencies and behaviors it created would drop away like magic. So what he did, the therapist, is he simply had her write down on a card which she would carry around with her, I believe if I leave home my mother will die. That simple statement, affirming the underlying emotional belief, not judging it, not denigrating it, not calling it insane, but just reminding herself of what her emotional belief was. And then as she, whenever she became activated and he asked her to talk on a daily basis about what it would mean to her, what it would look like to leave home, Every time she started to get activated, panicky, wanting to run away and hide, she'd bring up the card and remind herself that she was now in the emotional mind. And then the third part of the exercise was to look around for signs that her mother was safe. So she'd look around and see that her father was no longer living with her mom, that her mom had lots of friends, that her mom lived by a police station, that her mom was very active and healthy. And so, over time, simply by showing the emotional mind that her mother was safe, she was able, quite effortlessly and without any panic, to move out and to form a partnership with her fiancé. Now, if you went from the very beginning when she first set foot in that office said, okay, we're going to address your fear of leaving home by just showing you a bunch of images that your mother's okay, that would not have made very much sense to her intellectual mind. In fact, her intellectual mind would have probably gone, you're insane, I'm finding another therapist. But it's only through uncovering these, what the Buddha called the um, adinavas and asadas, the underlying emotional beliefs and addressing them, that we can begin to heal those needs. And so, we're going to put this into practice now. Once again, the key is what's called symptom deprivation, to try to experience what we would feel if we didn't have our firefighters, if we didn't have our defense mechanisms, if we didn't have our unwanted coping strategies. So let's close the eyes and get very comfortable. And just feeling into the body because not only is that the way we disconnect from the logical imperative, at least begin that process, but also the messages and the signals that we'll be looking to understand will largely be spoken to us through the body. Well, in the previous example I gave you of the woman in therapy, she used language, but very often emotional needs will be signaled directly to us through the body. In fact, I'd say that's most often the case. So this will be a somatic exercise, largely. So getting really comfortable if at any point during this exercise you feel uncomfortable physically just as quietly as you can so not disturb any 
of your neighbors, feel free to quietly reposition yourself. And just taking that moment to also just stretch the shoulders, open up the chest, do anything to create a neutral body. We want to go into this exercise with a body that's not primed in any direction towards carrying around tension from anything previous, trying to just relax. And now bringing to mind experience in our life wherein our behavior always frustrates us, something that we do almost automatic or fall into habitually where we have little control some tendency where it feels as if there's part of the mind working against our best interest. So for example, times when we procrastinate and we want to finish a resume, sing, learn to play an instrument, do something to the betterment of uh, our plans, and yet we constantly fall. Emotional tendencies we fall into where we shut down or become triggered, activated, defensive, or anxious. Now I'd like you to bring to mind an image of that very of a place and a time, a situation, a circumstance where you might experience this happening. So, for instance, the fear of, if it's fear of being seen by others or talking in public, we might visualize ourselves on a stage talking to a large group of people or if it's procrastination, not attending to something that is in our plans, we might visualize ourselves sitting down to do the task right before the stalling or distractions where we start looking elsewhere and don't follow through happen. that time and when we're talking with someone who triggers us and we want to stand up for ourselves but instead we become meek and voiceless and can't say anything where we can't get our needs across. And here's the kind of pivotal question which is what would I feel if I didn't have these tendencies? So for instance that tendency to binge eat when I'm at home watching a telly, if that's an example. What would I feel if I couldn't binge on nachos or Oreos? What would I feel? What would I feel if it wasn't for these firefighters, 
what would I feel if it wasn't for these unconsciously rooted behaviors that are present in my life? What would I feel? Now, at first, you might have a bunch of thought answers. I'd be safe, I'd be liberated, I'd be free, everything would be great. That's the conscious mind trying to intervene and, and assert its needs. But we want to hear from the emotional mind. What would we feel if it wasn't for these tendencies, behaviors, and if you can find a hidden fear, a hidden sadness, a hidden anger, or something beneath it, that's the exile, that's the wounded child, that's the part of ourselves we're most dreaded of feeling. And then if we could simply turn our attention to the firefighter that's activating all of these behaviors and just hold it for a moment in some way show it through an image that we're now an adult that we're now safe that we now have people who care about us that we now have Resources that we're now not as vulnerable as we were in infancy. Don't tell it, but show it with images that it doesn't have to be as active and intrusive. Just images of associated with being now an adult who's got support, who's here in a safe place. When the emotional mind sees that some of its beliefs are no longer true, without being judged or yelled at or oppressed or shamed, but just shown tenderly, we understand why it's there. But look, this is what's happening in our life now. This is the very beginning of the process. So I'm going to ring the bowl. Now, whether or not you found anything or anything was revealed or not, um, if something, even a small understanding of the emotional needs that are present, the next steps after we begin to familiarize ourselves with what these unconscious tendencies are trying to achieve, what their fears are, what their beliefs are, what they're trying to accomplish. We show them both what the Buddha called the drawbacks 
by showing it that the events of our childhood where we were alone and desperate and uncared for or other times in our life after childhood where we felt abandoned, mistreated by peers, shunned, ostracized, that those situations are not necessarily in place today. So we show the emotional mind tenderly that its beliefs are no longer matching what our real experience is. And then we show the emotional mind ways to meet its needs that are more adaptive and will be more participating in our left hemispheric, our goals. So for example, if I have a fear of, of uh, writing and presenting my work because I've, I have an early uh, experience in my life of people ridiculing my creative endeavors, then in, after seeing the fear and showing it that I'm now an adult and I'm not likely to be ridiculed like I was in fifth grade or sixth grade, then the next thing is I, I do is I say, okay, to the emotional mind, I get it. I understand that you're terrified of revealing your creative side to other people, and we'll take it very slowly. We'll find people who are kind. We'll show our work to a limited audience of people. We'll have multiple writing projects going on, so even if this project is not received well, I'll have other things that I can focus on. So we develop a whole bunch of strategies that address the underlying emotional need. At no point in this process are we ever judging, shaming, criticizing, or repressing. We're actually just finding, acknowledging, and then using our creative spirits to find new solutions that will make us feel safe, yet allow us to move out into the world and accomplish. So once again, invited to close our eyes and bring awareness into the body and the breath, just lowering awareness from its strict regimen above the head. So inviting all the sensations of the body to be present. So I'd like you to bring to mind an image of yourself at a significantly younger age, a time that feels very emotionally resonant, perhaps from a time of your life when there was instability in your family or when there was real sense of vulnerability, a time when, without thinking about it too much, you had to start on your own developing a lot of defenses to survive. Maybe this was the first time you went to interact with peers at school, or a time when a family member started to have issues or family 
security was threatened by a job loss or by the events including a sibling or external circumstances or anything that comes to mind. Just try to find an image of yourself from a resonant period. And see if you can hold that image and fill out a little bit of the details. What was this younger version of yourself wearing? What kind of hair? What was important to this child or young adult? What did you want at this period of your life? What was most important? So just have that image of yourself. If you had a nickname or some other way also of bringing to mind that time, that feeling, that set of needs, fears, desires that with everything else constructed you at that stage. Now see if you can bring to mind today some action or behavior without overthinking it that you suspect might be a legacy of this child, this younger version of yourself, this behavior that in some way might have started or have been absolutely necessary to this child to survive, but now causes challenges in your life. Don't overthink it. Whatever comes to mind, it might not literally make sense. It might have started the behavior at an earlier age or a later age, but we're going to talk to this image as if it is the owner and activator of this behavior. So for example, in my practice, I might bring up an an image of myself at 12 when I first found that alcohol helped me numb the feelings of anxiety and fear that I felt growing up in my family structure at that time. So we've isolated some image of ourself and some behavior or tendency that still present in our life today that may stem all the way back to that period. Avoidance, procrastination, binge eating, shopping, hiding from conflict, secretly 
engaging in behaviors that cause us shame, sex, anything that comes to mind. Now you don't have to reveal the specific behavior, but I would like the person who's sitting to the closest, to the front of the room, uh, if you're facing the front and the back, the person who's sitting closest to the middle of the room, will be the first questioner. And the questioner will ask the person who's sitting to the back of the room or the outside of the two, what happens when this part of you is in charge, this inner child? What happens when it is running the show, leaps up and takes control? Now you can be specific and say, I drink, I binge, I shop, I, I hide, I isolate, or you can simply say whatever feelings happen. I feel disappointed, I feel ashamed, I feel out of control, I feel uh, lost, I feel confused. And if you would like to, you can also answer what happens in your life. So the question the questioner will ask is, what happens when this part of you is in charge? And they'll ask it, and then the, the person who's not the questioner will answer, and when they finish, ask it again, questioner. What happens when this part of you is in charge? And answer again. And if you run out, that's fine. If nothing comes to mind, just allow yourself to sink into the pause until something new arises. Don't force yourself to answer and feel into the body as often as you can to see what needs to be felt. So again... The question for this round is, what happens when this part of you is in charge? So again, pause, feel. Thank, again, the inner child. Let it know that it's safe with you right now. And then together, I'd like you to, in your imagination, suddenly there's an index card and a pen at your disposal, and write whatever behavior or maladaptive coping or whatever you want to call it, whatever action this child is still today 
instigating and reassuring the child that you won't be in any way removing it from your mind, from your life, but simply this behavior and that this will be a long process. Write the name of whatever it is on that index card and then put that index card in a brown paper bag that you happen to have as well. You suddenly have a lot of implements. <laughs> and together with the child, visualize yourself walking to a large body of water with a paper bag containing the index card with the name of whatever behavior action, tendency, habit, routine, binge, that you'd like to gently begin to let go. And putting the bag on a wave that's crested into shore, and now the wave is receding, and with it, the paper bag, and it's floating away. And you and the child are standing on the shore watching this bag floating away into the horizon until it slowly disappears from view. And now there's nothing left but you, the protector, and the child together, no longer the child hidden away. And for the last question, I'd like you to invite this child to play a new role in your life. So this could be like, we'll travel together, or I'll express your needs in my drawing, in my songs, in my creative life. Or I'll let your wonder and your awe at the beauty of the world express itself whenever I connect once again with nature. How will you let this child play a role in your life so that you don't turn your back on it? We'll only ask this question once. So I'll ring the bell, the person who goes for, who asks first will ask it. And just take your time, answer in whatever way you'd like to bring the child, the frightened, scared, overwhelmed, lost child into your life in a new way. And then when you're done, ask the question to your partner. What new role could this part play in your life? There won't be a bell in between, so just naturally each part, each pair, find the time it takes. <laughs> 